And joining me now, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat from somewhere near Heartland. Hi, Al. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And I got my shots because they were free, you know. Yeah. If they were offering free MRIs, <laughs> I'd probably be in there today saying, give me the MRI. Right. I need. There's so few things that are free in life. We just have to take advantage of it. So I um, I should mention the Pelican Breeze. We're going to do the boat again now this uh, this summer. So I'm going to be on there June 27th. We're going to float around Elberly Lake and do a natural history tour. If anybody's interested, we'll be doing one in August, one in September. Uh, let's see, start all over. It'll be one in June, July, August, and September. There'll be four of them. If anybody's interested, give a call to 383-7273, and that's 383-7273. And I want to do a shout-out because I have to do that for uh, uh, grandchildren of a certain age. <laughs> the New Ulm River Rat. Went what a name, huh? The River Rats. They went five and zero in Shakopee this oh. weekend to take first place in a big Congrats. tournament up there. And my grandson Crosby, named after, I think there was a singing group involving his name, and uh, they did real well. So proud of them, and they seem like a good bunch of kids, and they just have a nice time playing ball. Well, now you seem to have a history of. Uh, uh, athletic stars in your family, including you, I, I'm pretty sure. And, your, of course, your granddaughter Joey's a big star here at Minnesota State, so I guess it's another one in the making, it sounds like. He uh, he loves to play. He plays a little bit of everything. So he's kind of, uh, yeah, he's a knucklehead, but they all <laughs> are at that age. And one day he'll grow to be an adult knucklehead like me. Oh, so good. we're looking forward to that. Oh, I, I spoke to Keith Radel. Keith's been a longtime friend of, he's from Faribault, and uh, Keith is a snow removal expert. He does uh, snow removal, and uh, this year was a slow one for Keith as far as snow removal. He said uh, he did enough business to pay for his insurance anyway, so that was, but he, the rest of this, this time of year, he maintains 175 sites for bluebird nest boxes. So that means he has a minimum of uh, 350 because wow. he'll put two boxes in each one. But I know Keith puts three at some, depending on where they're located and things and how busy they are. He told me that bluebird numbers in those boxes are down 53% from last year. And that's many of his birds winter in Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, and there were winter storms in February, and they were hard on those birds. The best year Keith has had fledging bluebirds was in 2012. And the next year we had a nasty spring. That was the year that uh, we got no crop in. We, uh, the farmers around me were all raising radishes, turnips, and buckwheat because they couldn't get things planted. The numbers in his box in 2013 were 53% lower than 2012. So this year they're 53% lower than last year. 2013, 53% lower than 2012. He said the availability of houses has led to double the number of chickadees nesting in them this year. And he has two chickadee pairs nesting 10 feet apart, and he's noted no disputes among them. And I was always, I always thought and had been taught that, you know, they won't nest that close, chickadees, because uh, they'll battle over it. But I guess we're being proven wrong, and maybe it's just... Uh, 
maybe it's just the opportunity that they have of uh, having these nest boxes that uh, they have a truce. I'm want oh, there's a hummingbird right by my window oh, here. Nice. I, you know, in the Spanish, there were no hummingbirds in Spain. There weren't? Nope. So when the Spanish first encountered hummingbirds, they called them resurrection birds because they believe something that shining must die each night oh. and be reborn the next morning. Wow. And the Spanish missionaries used hummingbirds to explain the resurrection. Huh. And male Anna's hummingbirds, uh, we get the ruby-throated hummingbird here, but on occasion we'll get another one. A male Anna's hummingbird dives at speeds of 385 body length Oof. per second. Wow. So you just everybody think of your own height and then <laughs> multiply that by 385. Oh, my. And that's how fast you could move in a second if you were a male Anna's hummingbird. And that was in a study, it was a U.K. journal, and I want to say it was Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And I think if I'm remembering incorrectly, that B is for biology. A Mayan legend said the two hummingbirds, or the first two hummingbirds, were created from, a, from the small feather scraps left over from the construction of other birds. So they built the birds and said they got some feathers left over, but not enough to build a really big bird that's built some little ones, and that's how hummingbirds came. And a lot of folks will know this, that hummingbirds are attracted to the color red. That's why we have it on bird feeders and everything. But they also like parked cars that are red. They like lipstick. Uh, I had a, oh, she'd been a relative of some kind, you know, like a second cousin twice removed or something. <laughs> she was telling me when she went out to the garden, she dolled up a little bit, you know, just put on a lot of lipstick and went out. And she said the hummingbirds would come up and get in her face. <laughs> and she thought they were bad at her saying, get out of here. And I told her, I said, it's that lipstick. They're checking out the red. And they also like hats. A lot of people are wearing red garden hats out there, and they will come up and um, just check those out to make sure there's no nectar in them. Uh, Bob Jansen of Golden Valley told me that he and Ray Glassell, Ray, uh, I knew Ray. Ray passed away here a few years back, but I've known Bob and Ray forever, and it's not the wonderful TV comedians, although these guys were funny, unless you got in their way when they were trying to get a county bird. They went around the state seeing how many birds they could see in each county. And they were birding years ago when they found 978 dead birds, including two yellow rails, near a communications tower by Louisville, or Louisville, Louisville, Louisville. Uh, guy wires, those are the wires that come down from these towers are bird killers in a fog. And uh, I almost forgot this, shame on me. It's a myth that ticks do not bother cats. I, I called a retired veterinarian because oh. he would he didn't charge me you know if i called a regular <laughs> vet i think i'd get a bill so he said cats can and do pick up ticks and they're most commonly seen around the face neck mm -hmm. ears feet and legs of your cat but they can attach to anywhere on a cat's body and i said are they a little bit better at getting them off than dogs and he said i ah, really couldn't say that but maybe so 
And I maybe dogs get off into the weeds, the tall grass, a little bit more than cats do. I, I don't know. Uh, dogs' bodies are bigger on average, so maybe they can host more ticks. Maybe that's why we see them. <clears throat> but um, he was he was very nice. I appreciated talking to him. Talked to him. We solved all the world's problems in about <laughs> 20 minutes, so it was nice visiting with him again. It's These guys, the old vets and things that you used to see almost every week, and then they retired, and you don't see them so much anymore. Uh, Paul Hansen of Albert Lee got a hold of me, and he had this odd bird that is feeder. And he said he looked it up online, but he said it couldn't be what it was. And he said it was a zebra finch, and that's indeed what it was. Uh, I know the nursing home in New Richland, where I visit quite often, they have a lot of zebra finches in the aviary there. And I'm guessing one somewhere got away, and it's uh, oh. it found a bird feeder where it's the same kind of food it was getting in the aviary. Uh, Cindy Drill of North Mankato said, I had a visit from a female pileated woodpecker. We removed a crab apple tree a few years ago and left about eight inches of stump above ground. At first, I used to hold a it used to hold a bird bath top, and eventually, it began rotting enough that I could no longer do that. Pileated woodpeckers, usually a male, visited the feeder near it, began to chop away at the stump. We believe it had carpenter ants, and the birds were finding lots of large larvae to feed on. Last fall, it had rotted away enough that we took a maul to the remainder of the stump and removed it to below ground level. Mulch was raked over the top, but no sight of the stump remained. Now I get a visit maybe once a week from a female pileated woodpecker. She backs down the power pole on the boulevard, flies to the front yard where the stump was. She begins by excavating to the point that she can find some remnants of the stump. At this point, making a trough in the mulch and soil almost to the depth that her body is fully at ground level. Then she begins to pound away below ground at stumps and roots, searching for food. At times, her head is completely out of sight below ground, like the famed ostrich with its head buried. She works for this at this for 10 to 15 minutes before moving on. In between her visits, we rake the soil, mulch back level, but she always returns to the spot. It's fascinating that these birds can remember where to find food, even when the source is no longer obvious. Yeah, if uh, if you're a bird, you know where the food is because that's that's your uh, yeah, that's your job. Uh, Larry Dolphin of Austin, a retired director at the Hormel Nature Center and a good birding buddy. Larry said, "Do you have anybody that can beat the eastern wood peewee for early risers?" It was at 4:25 a.m. Of course, the young barred owls were begging all night. The great crested flycatcher is not too far behind, sounding off around 4.35 a.m. And I checked mine this morning, Larry, 4.35 a.m., the great crested flycatcher began. So we uh, they must uh, stay in contact with one another. I did have a cat bird that did it 4.30 every morning, but he's uh, up to other things now. So he's kind of moved on from singing into my bedroom window. Uh, Jack May, who lives out uh, around St. Clair, mm -hmm. sent a photo of a damselfly, and it's a bluet. And, folks, you'll see a lot of these now. The, the adult males are a beautiful blue, hence the name bluet. 
and they will uh, pose nicely for you. They just stop at uh, maybe a grass or a, some sort of blade of grass or plant, and they'll just pose there. And there, there's beautiful things, and they fold their wings over their back, uh, opposed to what a dragonfly would do, where they hold them more like an airplane. Uh, Gunnar Berg sent me some wonderful photos of pelicans, cliff swallows, and yellow warblers. John of New Alm, Karen, you told me he sent a postcard made from a facial tissue box. You know, John is very resourceful and very creative. So he has sent many postcards over the years, and they're always cut exactly to postcard size. And sometimes they're from a cereal box, so I'll see the back, it'll say cornflakes, or sometimes from some other type of ad or something. This time it was a facial tissue box and so that was on the back side and then he you know on the front side writes the address to and then a little note with it so I appreciate his resourcefulness and his creativity and he loves stamps so he's always mentioning uh, buying stamps and this this particular facial tissue uh, postcard had a let's see it was a fish and coral stamp and and he always mentions when new stamps are coming uh, I think he mentioned something about Star Star Wars track uh, stamps coming up so it's always fun to see his creativity it is and uh, I get a, an occasional postcard from a guy who lives down in Ames Iowa that I met at a library down there and he sends postcards just to he sends postcards to people he doesn't know he reads oh. their names somewhere and he makes them out of oh, everything under the sun he got a bunch of books that were thrown away at a, uh, he found them at a, a landfill or a recycling center. I don't know where he got them, but he got them anyway. And he sent, he sent me a cover of one with a bird on it. It's beautiful. Of course, he pays a little extra because it's got more weight. And, mm. But he's just, this is his hobby, sending these postcards to people. And they're sort of like John's. They're all one of a kind. You don't get any more like these. Yeah, John said uh, stamps he thinks are going to go up three cents. Yeah. For postcards, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. Is that the same for uh, regular stamps are going up as well, I know. Yeah. Oh, shoot. I don't know. <laughs> you know, i got to go buy more forever stamps now to save yes. that three cents. Yes. I'll uh, buy enough, save, you know, so they last five years just to save that three cents. He uh he did say he's busier at work, and he saw the Cruella movie. He said it was a good and a great movie soundtrack. And his sister went through chemo, radiation, now getting infusions. And his dad is pretty good, and his birthday's the June 26th. So I wish well to all those good folks. Uh, Paul, and I'm going to get your name wrong, Paul. I'm going to say Sukanek. Saw a pine siskin at the Saco farmyard in Steele County, and boy, Paul, I have no idea where that is. He also saw a common merganser at Arrowhead Point County Park, uh, where I know exactly where that is, in Freeborn County, and it's near Freeborn. Uh, Glenn Unruh saw a white-faced ibis at Minnesota Lake. Brian Smith so a sandhill crane and an eastern meadowlark in Martin County and also an eastern meadowlark in Watanwan County. Bob Williams found an eared grebe, sandhill crane, and a white-faced ibis in Faribault County. Brad Abendross saw a marbled godwit in Steele County. 
I have tried on numerous occasions to find where the name Godwit comes from because it just sounds like there'd be quite a story there and I don't know. There's some people that speculate, but I don't think anybody seems to know. Uh, Tom Bovers saw a chestnut-sided warbler in Rice County. Uh, uh, I just got a text from somebody saying, is it because of the sound they make on the marble godwit? I, I don't know. I don't know where the name came from, but I'm going to keep looking. Good friend Bob Jansen. Yeah, Bob has uh, been retired some years, and he has become a full-time birder, just traveling around. He found a green-winged teal in Medelia, outside Medelia in Watton County, also a sandhill crane in that county. Andrew Nihus had a redhead in Martin County, a ring-necked duck, also a white rump sandpiper, Wilson's fellow rope, snowy egret, little blue heron, lark sparrow, and American redstart, all in Martin County. Chad Hines had a gadwall in Watton County, and Brian Smith had a lesser scop in Watwan County, John Schladweiler, John's great guy, retired from the DNR, a lesser scop at the Morgan Water Treatment Plant in Redwood County. And Tim Scott, thanks. Uh, Tim sent me a study, uh, it was in live science, finding even more intelligence in crows uh, in that they understand the concept of zero. And he also sent a thing from the Washington Post saying scientists are able to study migration much, much better thanks to technology. And they're going to get it down so, boy, you're going to just be able to find where a bird spends pretty much every waking minute going back and forth. So it's amazing what is just right around the corner. Uh, Verna Hoppy, she moved to Stillwater, and she said there are no Orioles at all. She's put up feeders and just no Orioles and checked with the neighbors and no Orioles and uh, Vern, I have no idea. Maybe it's a neighborhood that has not had Orioles. Maybe for who knows what reason they don't come there. I do hear from a number of people that say they think there are fewer Orioles than previous years and uh, again bird numbers in general are down for songbirds so I don't know Verna I just oh if I had the power to send you an Oriole this afternoon I would uh, snap my fingers and it would be so Uh, what is your favorite raptor I think the American kestrel is the most beautiful. I grew up with an American kestrel, and they are just exquisite. But the northern harrier, it was called a marsh hawk when I was a boy. That kept me company when I was a mere stripling along Mew Lake. But the peregrine falcon, because its TV channel kept me entertained when I was hospitalized. And the merlin, because I can't help but watch one when I see one, because they're always, they're just, they're fierce. But the red-tailed hawk, because it's always there, and I can see one when I want to. So I don't know if I have a favorite or not. I know my least favorite is a Toronto raptor. I just uh, I don't care for those guys. They won. Uh, <laughs> they beat up on the Timberwolves, and it's just uh, they're not. It's not a nice raptor. Does any bird have a beak longer than its body? Ooh. The sword-billed hummingbird. 
this would be a crossword puzzle answer if it wasn't so long. The sword-billed <laughs> hummingbird. Maybe this would be in the New York Times. I know when we were first married, I'd pick up the Sunday New York Times and come back and just try to work that, you know. Uh, uh, it was it's a great puzzle. But the sword-billed hummingbird is the only bird that I'm aware of that has a beak longer than its body, which is uh, it. You have to make a lot of lifestyle uh, choices when you have a beak longer than your body. Just think if if your nose was longer than your body, how that would change your life. Just getting into your car, you'd have to sit in the back seat somewhere to drive, have the steering wheel. I don't know where you'd have the steering wheel. It, uh, of course, birds don't have to worry about the sword-billed hummingbird. has never been a licensed driver, so that helps. How many nests does a cardinal have each year? I see all kinds of things that says they'll have three or four. And, you know, a lot of it depends on what part of their country they're in. Cardinals, Cardinalis Cardinalis, commonly raise two broods here in Minnesota, two. And the, when the first brood fledges, the father takes care of the fledglings. So you might see here shortly, if not already, you'll see the male out there being followed around by these young ones saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. <laughs> he takes care of them, and she builds a second nest, and she lays eggs. And then she incubates them while he's doing all this. So it's like a lot of parents, how they work out the day out there now. You know, you just uh, divide up the, the child care duties, and that's what they do. And cardinals, like most songbirds, will leave the nests too soon. And we always see them on the lawn. I see grackles all over now, young grackles that really can't fly very well. And why do they do that? Because predators have an easy time finding a nest full of loud baby birds. And also those nests can become hotbeds of parasites. Mm. So parents work to get their young out of the nest as quickly as possible. The parents keep feeding the young after they've left the nest. And the social distancing, young birds enhance their chance of survival. So Pa Cardinal, he might have one here in this corner of the yard and one over here on the other side, and he's flying back and forth, getting a lot of air miles, feeding these guys. I'm seeing a lot of dragonflies, and I tell everybody that dragonflies eat mosquitoes, and they do, but they don't you know, not nearly as many as I wish they did because adult dragonflies and mosquitoes can keep different hours. The uh, dragonflies will work days, but as we all know, mosquitoes can be out there in the darkness too. So they're pretty safe from dragonflies. But I will say the carnivorous dragonfly nymphs devour mosquito larvae in the, in the water. So they're still eating them. Just not as many as we wish they did, but maybe they'll get better at it and they'll start eating more and more. We can, we can hope for that. So you're talking about things eating things. Yesterday, my sons saw this at uh, the neighbor's yard. It was a garter snake that had captured a toad. Now imagine the size of a garter snake and how fat a toad is. And they actually watched from the progress as it started from the legs and then it devoured this toad 
um, it was actually uh, one of the parent mothers of one of the, the kids that they were watching was she she said she had to go inside because she couldn't watch it because here's this poor toad trying to escape as this garter snake continues to swallow it with his um, sharp teeth and you could see this big lump going down I said to, I asked my son I said was it wiggling because oh yeah it was trying to get away but that snake almost lost it once and then they you know just kept kept at it and eventually there was just a big lump in this snake where then I guess it takes several hours or a long time to digest so it's a part of nature that isn't fun to see necessarily but it's a part of I guess what the the cycle of life I remember sitting with a when I was a boy with a neighbor Spurgeon and we were down by the Lesur River and we watched a garter snake do that same thing and we were uh Oh, you know, we were farm kids, so we saw stuff <laughs> yeah. uh, used as food. But, boy, we still had that. We, You know, we wanted to reach out and save that toad, but something told us, you know, <laughs> this is the way things go. So, yeah, it. Uh, I don't know how long we sat there watching that. And it was an amazing thing to see, and it was so amazing, Karen, that I still remember not only where it was, but who I was with. Wow. And uh, I don't remember how old I was, but uh, we just sat there and watched that, and it, it was um, it was an incredible thing to see. I have to say that because we did not have, uh, oh, you know, all the videos and things that we have today where we can see stuff like that. But we saw that man. I went home and told my dad <laughs> all about it, and he he said, "Yep, that's the way things work." And no, when when they why do they start at the legs? I was surprised. I figured they'd want to, you know, start at the head or something. And and I assume that eventually they die because they suffocate. Is that the case? I yeah, kind of grotesque, I think but. this. If I remember right, now I'm getting kind of in that hazy mm. memory, but it seems like this one went head first. Okay, this was feet first. The boys said yeah. so. Let's get yeah. off. Kind of awful watching the poor thing try to escape as it the thing because apparently snakes have some kind of fangs that they kind of like barbs or something that they can can hold them on with. And I there's a poster that's out that's got like a great blue heron or a heron or an egret of some kind, and it's eating a a frog, and the frog is going in head first, but it has its its front feet out and they're grabbing the. I can't remember if they're grabbing the bill or the neck of the bird. And underneath, it's one of those motivational posters that says, never give up. So. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> well, now I saw some pretty exciting things uh, yesterday when I was getting ready for work. I looked out the kitchen window and there was all this movement in my salvia. Salvia is a purple uh, yep. flower and I've got other flowers uh, in the backyard by the pond. The pond is just a, a, is a busy place in my yard. It's got the, the toads and everything else but there were goldfinches and Hollywood finches and they were just attacking my salvia like you wouldn't believe they were clinging on the the flower stems and, and they were just diving their heads in there so I look later and there's some sort of a little pollinator. I don't know what it is but it was and I don't know if that's what they were going after, but it was just looked like they were just taking and shaking my, my salvias. There's probably six of them, so there must have been something really good uh, hanging around on those plants. Yeah, because they're seed eaters for the oh, most Oh, well, part. maybe they were so. going for the seeds. Because I said that to my husband. Yep. I said, because the salvias are drying, you know, that they're getting the dry seed heads. They're purple. And so I was thinking that they were going for insects, but maybe it was for the seeds. 
Yep, they're pretty much oh. vegetarians. Okay, well so then. They, yep, they will sometimes eat uh, insects. I think sometimes just by mistake because okay. it's on a seed or something. Um, thanks, everybody, for sitting on the front porch with us. I, I want to read something. It's a short thing here from the Jamestown, North Dakota Weekly. I've been to Jamestown many times. Wonderful place. This is from the weekly dated May 18, 1911, and it's from Minot. The headline says, Yawned and Bird Flew in Mouth. While going at the rate of 35 <laughs> miles an hour yesterday afternoon, J.S. Loomis of Council Bluffs, Iowa, who was out with a local automobile party looking over Ward County land, had a little experience which he won't soon forget. The machine was headed north and going against a stiff wind. Loomis opened his mouth to yawn, and before he had time to close it, a sparrow flew directly into the cavity. Needless to say, the bird was equally as startled as Mr. (laughs) Loomis and lost no time in getting out of its strange quarters. The party brought Loomis into the city immediately and he was taken into a local physician's office <laughs> where several small scratches made by the bird's claws were given attention so <laughs> folks be careful with your yawning today remember heartland is well worth driving past thanks for listening to us and uh, karen i enjoyed your company do something wild today folks look at a bird al it's always great to have you too as and we'll be back again uh, actually i'll be not here next week you'll be chatting with Dwayne next week so uh, until then happy bird watching thanks bye-bye all right bye-bye